Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, I would like to invite you to turn to Luke chapter 17. Luke 17, and we're going to begin in verse 20 this morning. You'll find that on page 867 in the Pew Bible in front of you. And our goal this morning is to work through 18 verses of Luke's Gospel. There's a lot to handle here. And I think you will be helped, if you will, by having the Word of God open through our message that we continually refer back to it as this constant reminder as to what we're studying and considering today. It's not my words or some other man's words, but the words of our Lord. So I would invite you, even though the words are on the screen as we begin, to have a copy of Luke's Gospel open. And while you're finding your way uh, there to Luke chapter 17, I just uh, want to, um, on behalf, I think, of of our entire congregation, thank our brother uh, Tom and his uh, five years of service to us. And uh, we love you, Tom. I love you. Love you, Donna. I'm excited for what God's going to do in your life. And can we appreciate Tom and his service to this church? <laughs> Tom, from the very beginning, was a, has just been an incredible encouragement to me. And um, much of my pastoral ministry, I trust, is due to him and his influence in my life and my pra- his prayers for me. And so... Very thankful for my brother. Well, Luke 17, verse 20. Hear now the word of God. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them. The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to the disciples, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there, or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will be the Son of Man in His day. But first, He must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his house goods, with his goods in his house, not come down to take them away, and likewise, the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife? Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken, the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken, and the other left. And they said to him, Where, Lord? And he said to them, Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Our Father in heaven, we come now and ask that you would, in your kindness to us, by your Spirit, who indwells us, 
to help us to consider the truth in which Jesus has imparted to us, inclined for us to consider this morning. The truth in which we hear, much of it is fills, I trust, our hearts with joy and delight and anticipation, and, and yet part of it fills our hearts with dread. I pray, Father, that you would help us to hear it as you intend for us, that it would do its work in our lives. I trust you want to work in us today. I trust that you would delight in saving the lost today and sanctifying the saints today. So we ask humbly that you would do that work in our lives for the glory of Christ, for we ask it in His name. Amen. Charles Taze Russell the founder of the Jehovah's Witnesses, declared in 1874 that Jesus Christ returned to the earth invisibly to set up His kingdom. He then predicted that 40 years from that day, that will be 1914, Jesus will return again, but this time He would return in visible form here upon the earth. Well, I hate to break it to you, but uh, Jesus was a no-show. He did not come in 1914. Well, Russell, after 1914 happened, he clarified. And what he meant when he said 1914 is he meant 1918. And that Jesus, of course, did come again in 1914, but he came invisibly again. But take my word for it, he said, he's coming in 1918. He's going to annihilate the wicked, he said. He's going to set up his kingdom. It's going to be awesome. So, so get ready. 1918 came. And uh, Jesus didn't come. He forgot again. And so, not to be deterred, Russell said, okay, well, I understand I said 1918, but I've, I've done some more calculations, and what I really meant to say was 1925. And he even wrote a book uh, shortly after 1918, saying, million, title of the book, Millions Living Now Will Never Die. And he says, okay, the reason is because Jesus is coming back in 1925. It turned out, unfortunately, however, that it did not happen. And so Russell, you got to give him credit for his perseverance, uh, did more study, and he still stuck to this 1914 date that Jesus returned invisibly. I think he said, I may be wrong, I think he said he came to Philadelphia, is where Jesus came uh, invisibly in 1914. And then he saw, well, in Matthew 25, he says a generation will pass away um, uh, once these things begin. And so he says, well, a generation is about 30 or 40 years so we should, we can be sure that Jesus probably coming somewhere around 19, in the 1940s, somewhere, um, about 30 or 40 years from 1914. In fact, he was so confident that Jesus would return in the 1940s that he built a, the Jehovah's Witnesses built a mansion in, uh, San Diego. And, and they built a mansion because, you know, when Jesus comes, all the dead saints are going to be resurrected and, and Abraham and, you know, and all the prophets, they're going to need a place to live. And what better place than San Diego, right? So uh, we'll build, and so you got Abraham and Ezekiel, and they each got their own wing, and this is the Elijah wing, and it's a, it's a massive and beautiful structure, right? Because Jesus is coming in the 1940s. Unfortunately, Abraham never was raised, and Ezekiel never showed up uh, because Jesus did not come in the 1940s. However, um, uh, 
the, the prophet of the Jehovah's Witnesses, being a good steward, didn't want the mansion to go to waste and be unoccupied. And so the leader of the Jehovah's Witnesses now reside in the San Diego mansion, waiting for Jesus to come, who Russell then said is coming in 1994. See, his mistake was he thought a generation was 30 to 40 years. A generation, he, further studies, actually 80 years, 80 plus 1914 is 1994. Take it to the bank. Jesus is coming in 1994. And of course, once again, uh, Jesus did not show up. Now you think, okay, this is a little ridiculous, isn't it? I mean, clearly no one is going to believe this stuff. Except 8 million people worldwide do. Not to be outdone, on April 2nd, year 2000, uh, Benny Hinn, you know Benny? Um, he announced that uh, later this month and his, and his crusade in Kenya, um, that there was going to be a special guest uh, there, and it's none other than Jesus is coming to Benny Hinn's crusade. You go watch him on YouTube make this announcement. It's rather interesting. In fact, he, go, he said that Jesus comes to his crusades often, but he sits in the audience and he doesn't like to spotlight and, you know, just wants to observe. But in, in, in the end of April in 2000, Jesus, live and on stage, is going to appear with, with Benny there. And you think, okay, clearly no one's going to believe this, except 140,000 people came. Later that year, he had literally millions of people come to his crusades in India. Right? By the way, Jesus canceled his appearance. He, he did not make it. Um, he had something else going on, evidently. So 1914, 1994, you know, Benny Hinn, you know, all these different, and we go on, we could spend the whole hour talking about all these kind of crazy predictions about the, the, when Jesus is going to return. You think, why does anybody believe this stuff? I mean, why, 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 why are we all, uh, people, so many people, millions of people fall, falling for these scams, if you will. And the reason, I think, is that so many people follow these, these wackos, is that they really want Jesus to return. Don't you? They want the kingdom to come. When is the kingdom coming? Which is, by the way, something we've been asking for quite some time. For you see in verse 20, it's exactly what the Pharisees asked. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come. Now the Pharisees didn't even like Jesus. But they still want to know what he thought about this. Right? What, tell us when it's coming. When is the kingdom of God going to come? And Jesus uses that question as an opportunity to explain his kingdom. And I want to consider the kingdom of God today really in three parts. The first, first part, we'll consider what is the kingdom of God. I think there's perhaps some confusion there. Secondly, we'll consider that the kingdom of God has come. And then lastly, we will consider and probably spend at least half our time considering that the kingdom of God is coming. So first of all, what is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God, by the way, is a phrase that is used by Jesus 27 times in Luke's gospel alone. He talks about it over and over and over again. And there's many different ideas or definitions about what the kingdom of God is. Let me give you the one that I have found the most helpful. And uh, I've shared this with, with many on a Wednesday night teaching. That God's kingdom is God's people living in God's place. Under God's rule, enjoying God's blessings. God's people in God's place, under God's rule, enjoying God's blessings. 
And if you understand the kingdom of God in that way, you could kind of see how perhaps the unifying principle of all of Scripture is this idea of God's kingdom. That in the beginning where we start off in Eden, you have God's people living in God's place, under God's rule, enjoying God's blessing. The world is a paradise. The world's a garden. It's beautiful. There's no death or disease. There's no corruption or oppression. There's no hunger, no injustice, no brokenness. Just, just God rules there and, and, and creation flourishes and is, is alive and thriving. And yet, unfortunately, uh, the humans there, they wanted control. Our first parents, they rejected what? God's rule. You're not going to tell us what to do. We are going to decide for ourselves what is evil, what is good. We want to be our own God. We want to, in, in a sense, what they're saying is we want to live in our own kingdom. We reject you as our king, we reject your rule, and we want our own kingdom, and they got exactly what they asked for. They got their own kingdom. And in many ways, you look around this world, and this is, this is what the world looks like when humans are in charge, right? And relations begin to unravel immediately. Genesis 3, all life begins to unravel. Once you reject God's rule, his blessings are withdrawn and the relationships that were supposed to be full of harmony and love are immediately uh, presented as ones of accusation and shame. Creation, which is supposed to obey those who have been given dominion over it, begins to fight back. There's hostility even in creation. And, and we see we've lost paradise. We've been sent out in, into the wilderness and, and then you read on in Genesis. You get Genesis 4, and what do you have? You've got the first brothers, and one is killing the other brother out of petty jealousy. And, and then you get to Genesis 6, and the world is full of violence. And you get to Genesis 11, and, and all of humanity is thumbing their nose at God. There's disease and war and injustice and poverty, idolatry and this exile, all followed by death. And this is, in many, this is the kingdom in which all of us are born, born into. So someone has likened our life outside God's kingdom as a, as a fish living in a puddle, right? There's enough water to survive, but it's too small for us, right? And all the things that we put in front of us as reasons to live, whether it be our family or our country or our job or whatever we put our identity, it's just, it's a puddle too small. We're designed to live for God. And so we've been living outside this kingdom, but God in his grace has sent these prophets. And we even heard one beautifully, Isaiah 35. What a powerful passage. He's prophet after prophet saying one day God is going to bring back his kingdom. Right? And the earth is going to flourish. The earth will be a garden again, as we saw from Isaiah 35. And all the decay and the violence and the sadness will be be replaced with this vibrancy and this peace and this joy and these adventures and prophet after prophet. And Isaiah spends about a quarter of his book talking about it. And Ezekiel spends the last like half of his book talking about it. And prophet after prophet says the kingdom's coming. We get to the end of the Old Testament. We got Malachi. At the end of Malachi, he says, one day we're going to run out into this new kingdom of God like a calf being loose from its stall, filled with joy, leaping and dancing, full of delight. The kingdom is coming. And for hundreds and hundreds of years, the prophets declared that. And one day Jesus shows up. And in Mark chapter 1 and verse 15, he says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. And what does he start doing? He starts healing people and cleansing them. 
He starts rebuking creation when it rises up in opposition to him. He starts restoring families and, and, and removing isolation. He, he even encounters death and what he reverses death over and over again. It's the kingdom of God. It's just a little glimpse of the kingdom. And, and he, and in fact, the Pharisees were rather frustrated with him with all, they couldn't deny the miraculous activity, but they could deny it was from God. And they say he's doing it because he has the devil in him. And Jesus argues with him in Luke chapter 11, if you remember, it's not the devil. And he gives like a number of reasons why it's not the devil in him. And eventually he, he concludes in Luke 11 verse 28, it says, If it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. It's here right now. And he's inviting us back to Eden, if you will come to me. He says, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I... I will give you rest. You find rest in me. And so th- that's the kingdom which Christ has come to bring. Now the reason, this let me give you three reasons why this is incredibly important. That we understand that Christ has come to bring the kingdom of God. Because I think we minimize what Christ has come to do. And we minimize it to the point where we say, Christ has come to forgive me so when I die I go to heaven. But he's come to do far more than that. And so if, if, the, if he's brought the kingdom of God, what that means, number one, is that salvation is not just about you, it's about all of creation. Right? Salvation is not mainly about making you happy, forgiving your sins, and taking you to heaven when you die. That's part of it. But I'm, I'm telling you, you, read the, you ever read the end of the Bible? We, are we all escaping to heaven? No, my friends, what? Heaven is coming down to earth and renewing this creation. All of creation is being brought back into this harmonious relationship within the kingdom of God. God the kingdom of God is the restoration of all things. It, it's, it's not simply just to reconcile you to God. It's to reconcile all creation back to its creator, to end all brokenness. This is why Ephesians 1 and verse 10 says, Jesus has a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him. Things in heaven and things on earth. And so the kingdom of God means that salvation is not just simply to save your souls. It's to restore everything. To get rid of injustice and disease and hunger and decay. A second reason why we need to understand Jesus brought a kingdom is that the kingdom of God means salvation is not just about you. It's about us. It's not just about you, it's about us. We have this Americanized Christianity where we think, well, it's just about me and Jesus. And I'm just going to know Jesus better by myself, and I'll follow Jesus better by myself. You see, Christ is not, didn't simply come to save individuals. He came, as we see from the very beginning of Scripture, read Genesis 12 and all the way through, that God has come to create a people citizens living within a kingdom in relationship to one another as they relate to him. And so the American Christian idea that I'll follow Jesus on my own is in direct opposition to the kingdom in which God has sent Jesus to bring. To say, to say listen, I'm going to just undo my own thing. I'll follow Jesus all by myself. It's, it's akin to an Israelite saying, I'll follow God, but I don't need Israel. I mean, it's absolutely ludicrous. It makes no sense. I'll take God but not his kingdom. That's the option's not open to us. It's about us. It's about coming together and living together in a community that is rightly related to God. Number three, the kingdom of God means that salvation is not just about you. It's about him. 
what do you need if you have a kingdom? You need a king. <laughs> right? Jesus is the king. He is the king of kings. Note verse 22. And he said to his disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the son of man. Everybody say son of man. Son of man. Right? And you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there, look here. Do not go out and follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in His day. Jesus refers to Himself as the Son of Man, in fact, four times in this passage. It is His favorite way to identify himself he calls himself son of man i think more than 80 times in all the gospels you take lord son of david son of god messiah christ put them all together and he called himself son of man more than all the other terms combined so what does it mean does it mean that he's a son of man well it does not mean it is not let me put it this way simply a reference to his humanity When Jesus calls himself Son of Man, it is not simply a reference to his humanity. It is almost always used in in, in a way to describe that he has power, that he rules, that he's returning. Let me show you a couple examples just from Luke. Look in Luke 18, verse 8. He says, second half of verse 8, Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, that's his return, Will he find faith on earth? The Son of Man is coming. He's going to be looking for faith on earth. Turn over to Luke 21. Jesus, again, talking to, about himself as the Son of Man in verse 27. Luke 21, verse 27. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. So he says, I'm going to come again, and I'm going to come with all this power, glory, riding in the clouds. Look in Luke 22, verse 69. This is Jesus on trial, and he says here, But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. You see, once again, a reference to this power and this authority in which he has. What Jesus is doing when he's referring to himself as the Son of Man is he is is fulfilling the promise given to us from the prophet Daniel. And normally I don't have us do this, but I would like us... you keep your finger here, your bookmark in Luke 17, but turn back to Daniel chapter 7. And this is what Jesus is talking about when we want to know what does he mean by calling himself the Son of Man. Daniel 7, find that page 745 if you're using a pew Bible. Daniel will be the last of the four major prophets. You find go Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, then Daniel. And Daniel 7, look in verse 13. He said... I saw in night visions, and behold, Daniel says, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days. So someone looking like a man, that's why he's called the son of man, because he's looking in heaven and says, wait a second, there's someone in heaven that looks like a man, like a son of man, and he comes to the ancient of days, that's God the Father, and was presented before him. And look in verse 14. And to him was given dominion and glory 
and a kingdom that all the people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. You see, the Son of Man, according to the Scripture, is this divine king sent from heaven, a man somehow sent from heaven in order to sent by the ancient of days in order to rule the entire world and to establish his kingdom over all places and people and his kingdom would never end. It would just be unending righteousness and justice and he's going to come and he's going to defeat all of his enemies and, and rescue some enemies that submit to him and he's going to establish this kingdom, right? This is why I read my kids' fairy tales, right? And I've shared this with you. This is why we love them, right? Because... We get right the fairy tales and the, 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 the swords and you rescue the captives and you slay the dragon because they're all true. It all points to our king who is coming, carrying a sword to defeat the dragon and rescue us so we can all with him live happily ever after. So let your kids play with swords, right? right? Not real ones, right? Let them be these, these these warriors, if you will, defeating the dragon and rescuing the captives, is they're just God's image bearers. And it's inside of all of us. We all wanted this king who would come and defeat evil and liberate people and usher this kingdom of peace and love and joy and adventure. And Jesus says over and over and over and over, that's me. I am that king. And I have come to bring this kingdom. Now, my friends, if Jesus is the king, why do you want a relationship with him? Do you come to a king to have all your needs met? No, he will meet your needs. It's not why you come to a king. Do you come to a king because you, you want the king to make you happy? No. Though he will. Do you come to a king negotiating? Do you, do, do you come only if his agenda fits your agenda? You know how you come to a king? Bowing. You come to a king with your face to the ground. You come in submission. You come with no demands. When you come to Christ, you lose control of your life. What you watch on TV, how you spend your money, your sex life, at all, you lose control. You know what I did before I became a Christian? Anything I wanted to. Right? That's what I did. I don't get to do that anymore. I am under authority. I am under submission. And many people come to Jesus and they want you to be my assistant and not my sovereign. And I'll tell you, if salvation is a kingdom, then salvation is not primarily about you. It's about the king. And when we come to his king, and we enter his kingdom, we receive his blessings, right? And he renews the world, which raises the question, if Jesus brought a kingdom, which he said he did, why is the world so messed up, right? Well, the, what Jesus is going to tell us in this passage is that the kingdom has started, but it is not culminated. Theologians call this inaugurated eschatology, Okay. Eschatology is just the study of end times, right? Inaugurated, right? You inaugurate a president, you start his presidency, but you don't finish it. 
So it's the end times have started, but they are not finished. The kingdom has come and the kingdom is coming. So consider, secondly, the kingdom of God has come. The Pharisees ask him, and you are listening way too slow this morning. So um, we're going to have to pick up speed. Ready? Uh, Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered, now, when the kingdom, when they ask when the kingdom of God is coming, they're saying, we're under Roman opposition, oppression, we're waiting for the divine king, we're waiting for the Messiah, he'll end injustice, he'll rule the world, they want to know when will that happen. That's a fine question, I suppose, but Jesus will not answer it for them. In fact, he begins by adjusting their expectations. Look what he says. He answered them, verse 20, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is or there. He says, don't go looking for signs. Don't be searching for this or that. Why? Why should they not look for signs? They shouldn't look for signs because the kingdom is right in front of them. For he says in verse 21, for behold, The kingdom of God is in the midst of you, right? It's right in front of you. What an astonishing thing to say. This this Galilean traveling rabbi says, I've brought the kingdom of God. It is right here. And you're looking for signs of its coming. And I'm telling you, Jesus says, it's right in front of your face. And you're missing it. I mean, you see the irony. Excuse me, King Jesus. When will the king come? Right? Jesus says, he's here. He's right. Remember when he said in Luke 12, he says, you guys can read the weather, but you, 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 you can't figure out what's going on around you. The Messiah is within your grasp. Now, of course, they're not asking about that. They're asking about the end when he comes to reign. And he knows that. But it's not important for them. Right? How it all ends is not something they need to worry about. What they need to worry about is getting into the kingdom right now. Why they still have an opportunity. They're standing outside the kingdom with all their speculation and say, okay, well, tell me how it's going to finish and what's going to happen. And Jesus says, hey, guys, it's right here. Why don't you come on in? Why don't you enter? Right? You should just come in. Listen, some of you... Do not need to worry about the future. You have enough trouble today. Right? Yeah, you have enough going on, and how it all ends is probably not the most important thing for you to know. Right? And, and maybe there's some here, you don't even have a relationship with Jesus. Don't worry how it ends. Don't get caught up in all that. Come into the kingdom now. Say, so how do I do it? Look in chapter 18, verse 17. 18 verse 7, we'll study this passage, God willing, in the future. But he says, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter. You don't come demanding. You don't come with your own works. You don't come with your resume. You come in dependence. You come with trust and you enter the kingdom of God. My, My brothers and sisters in Christ, the kingdom of God is here. It's here when you love your enemies. It's here when you've forgiven Forgive someone seven times in a day as we considered a couple weeks ago. It's here when you serve others and you worship Jesus and you care for your spouses. The kingdom of God is when we are increasingly leaving ourselves under his rule and reflecting his love and care for one another. And what we do, why we live in it, we pray for it's coming. He taught us to pray. Pray that your kingdom would come. We pray that we would, we would submit ourselves more fully. We'd be more fully immersed in the kingdom and that others would come in through salvation. We, we seek first his kingdom. We, we, we don't worry about this or that. 
that. We, we, we think my job, first of all, in life is to seek the kingdom of God and to be a faithful citizen of the kingdom of God. I was in Ghana, as you know, um, I don't know, a little while ago, and, and Pastor Paul, we were talking with him. He has members in his church that don't have a job, don't have money, and don't have food. No money, no job, no food. And they come to Pastor Paul and say, Paul, we don't have, I don't have food today. And Paul says, okay, this is what you need to do. You know, number one, you need to pray for your daily bread. Number two, you need to think and figure out how you can seek the kingdom of God today. And God will meet your needs. We live for the kingdom. We need to understand our lives first, primarily, is about our King. And He will take care of your needs. The kingdom of God is in our midst, Jesus says. Of course, we need faith to see it. But one day it will come in such power and fullness that we will not need faith to see it. Consider third, the kingdom of God is coming. Verse 22. And he said to his disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man and you will not see it. He begins by explaining that the kingdom of God will be delayed. He says, one day, there's a day coming, you're going to long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, right? You're going to long to see when he comes and fixes everything, right? I don't know if you ever feel that way. When is he going to come and fix everything? All the wars and the suffering and the tweets, right? And the, the poverty and the wickedness and the elections. And we just, I just wish he would come already. You ever, right? Don't you long for Jesus to come and to rule this world and a reign of righteousness and just there's love and joy and adventure and satisfaction. You ever feel like the kid in the back seat saying to God, you know, how much longer, right? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Well, Jesus is telling us in verse 22, no, we're not there yet. It's going to be like 2,000 years or more. So buckle up and hang on for a little bit. It's going to be delayed, right? And he's saying these to the disciples, by the way, who are going to suffer badly for their faith in Christ. He says, you're going to want my return, but it's not going to happen. You say, well, why is is he taking so long? Why do we have to wait? The Bible tells us that God is waiting because he's patient. Not because he's slow. Peter says that God is not slow, as some of you count slowness, but is patient. Not what, not what, I'm paraphrasing here, not wanting anyone to perish, but, but all to come to faith in him. Aren't you glad that God waited till after you got saved? I'm thankful he didn't come when I was 16. I'm thankful that he waited. He has more people to save. He has sheep that are, are his, that are not in his fold yet. He's going to bring them in, isn't he? He's patient. He knows what he's doing. And he says, I know you're going to desire it. Well, don't let that desire mislead you. Secondly, about the coming kingdom, he says the the coming kingdom will be dramatic. It will be delayed. Secondly, it will be dramatic. Look in verse 23. And they will say to you, look there, look here. He says, do not go out and follow them. He's warning them that people are going to come who claim to have some inside information about his coming. And they're going to say, I know when he's returning and I I know where he's coming and where he's going to show up. And I've got it all figured out. And you could go. I mean, this is very popular today. Go to the Christian bookstore, go to Lifeway and you'll find the books. And they all have fancy charts and graphs and they all look very persuasive. They all got it all figured out. There's only one problem is that they're all wrong. I remember when I first came, became a Christian, I grabbed this book. I pulled off my bookshelf. Anybody read this one? The late, great planet Earth. Right? 
Do you think anybody reads this? Number one bestseller of the decade on the New York Times list. Is that not extraordinary? You read this book, and what does our brother Hal Lindsey say? He says, the Antichrist is alive today and is waiting for his time to come forth. Right? He's got it all figured out. But he's wrong. Right? This was written in 1970. He's been waiting a long time, if that's the case. Don't, don't worry about it. So listen, you read the Bible, and the Bible is very clear on some of the big things about Christ coming. Right here, this passage is very clear on the, some of the big things. All the small things that people want to mystify you with and say, okay, this bowl fits here, and this trumpet fits over here, and we got it all together. And they all got charts, and they're all very persuasive and very interesting. I'm telling you, don't waste your time with that. People have been trying to deceive us over and over again, saying, I got it figured out from the very beginning. You look, read the books of the Thessalonians, first and second Thessalonians. They're all freaked out about the second coming. The first Thessalonians, they think it's about to happen. And, and in effect, they're, they're bottling their water and canning their goods and they're getting ready. And, and then second Thessalonians, they think they missed it, that it already happened and that God for, forgot them somehow. And, and Paul says, listen, we don't know when he's coming. Go get a job, Right. And it might be a while, okay? And so don't be deceived, Jesus says. And he's protecting us by warning us here not to be deceived. You don't know when I'm coming. And the reason why you don't have to follow this guy or that guy who says, I know it, I got it figured out, is because when he comes back, everyone will know it. We won't need anyone to tell us. Look what he says in verse 24. For as lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day, Right? His return is going to be sudden and, and powerful, bright. I grew up in Southern California. We, we don't get thunderstorms in Southern California. We don't get rain in Southern California. Um, and, and the weather, by the way, is far better than it is here. But one th- I like a thunderstorm, right? I, I enjoy a thunderstorm. You know when it's dark, right, and maybe the power's out? Or sometimes when I'm backpacking, I'm on the side of the mountain, thunderstorms come in, and, and it's just pit- I mean, you can't see your hand in front of your face, and all of a sudden... The entire tent lights up. It's like someone just flips on the light switch and then turns it off real quickly. You remember when you see one of those big thunderbolts? And, and do you ever say to someone, hey, did you see that? I don't know why we say that because, of course, they saw it, right? No one ever says, see what? What are you talking about, right? You can't miss it. Even if you wanted to miss it, even if you tried your hardest to miss it, you would not be able to miss it. That's how Jesus will be when he comes, Right? You will not miss it. All the world will see it. John Piper says the difference between the first and the second comings of Christ is the difference between a candle and a bolt of lightning. Okay? We will all see it. It will be dramatic and it will be evident to us all. Number three, the kingdom of God will be sudden. It will be sudden. Verse 26, just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They will be eating and drinking and marrying and be given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they will be eating and drinking, buying and selling, planning and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Judgment will come with the suddenness that it has always come. Day after day, people in Noah's day, people in Sodom's day, they lived in rebellion Never imagined that judgment was coming. Never imagined that there would be a reckoning and it fell upon them without warning. It came upon them 
Um, it's fascinating to me the way Jesus describes how it came upon them. You think, well, Sodom, is gonna, he's going to describe their sin. Um, days of Noah, he'll describe their sin, but he doesn't. He just says, listen, Jesus will come just like he did in Sodom when people were eating and drinking and shopping and building and marrying. His point is going to come suddenly, right? When he returns, we're going to be sitting down for dinner or checking the email or coaching Little League or, or tucking our kids into bed. Was, and so many people, there's no thought of their sin. And there's no thought of their eternity. And, and whether, they're just going about life. Just, just kind of going through the motions, just doing the same thing they did yesterday. And that's at that time, Christ will return. So it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed and many people will be overtaken by this sudden judgment. Just, just like it uh, happened 13 years ago. Remember that uh, tsunami in the Indian Ocean that killed a quarter million people? This is an unbelievable, terrible tragedy. I mean, it was such a powerful event that it displaced the North Pole by two and a half centimeters. Actually, the Earth tilted a little bit. It increased the rotation of the Earth. That day was shorter than every other day. The Earth spun quicker that day. So powerful was that event. And, and no one knew it. No one knew it was coming. And people are just sunning themselves on the beach. And all of a sudden, the ocean rose up and came for them and killed a quarter million people with no warning. You see, Jesus is warning us now, isn't he? You hear the warning? I'm trying to warn you now. On a very ordinary day when people are eating and sleeping and working, God will suddenly come to settle accounts. And that suddenness should wake us up. Are you ready for his return? Have you entered into his kingdom? Have you submitted to the returning king? How many people give no thought, live their entire life with no thought to their souls, no thought to their eternity? They're too busy watching the game on TV or mowing the lawn or going grocery shopping. And Jesus says, no, my coming is sudden and therefore you must prepare. Consider forth the coming kingdom requires preparation. Requires preparation. Verse 31, on that day... Let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in his house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. He's warning us that when he comes, all the stuff that we've accumulated, we can't take with us. He says, don't run back in the house and say, let me grab my diploma. Or let me grab my, you know, my computer or my TV or, or whatever it is. These things that we think I can't live without them. He says, don't put your hope in these things. They're not coming with you. In fact, look what he says in verse 32. He says, remember Lot's wife. I just think that's a powerful scripture. By the way, you want to memorize the scripture. There it is, three words. Remember Lot's wife. Maybe you meditate on that this afternoon. What what does he mean? Maybe, Maybe you should spend some time thinking about Lot's wife who was destroyed on her way out of Sodom. As judgment fell upon Sodom, she looked back, didn't she? And the problem wasn't her looking back so much. That's a symptom of her heart. She looked back because she longed for what God was taking. She, she loved that more than the God that, who was trying to save her. In fact, Charles Spurgeon preached a four-point sermon on this one verse, these three words. Right? She looked, she longed, she lingered, and she died. Instead of living for these things, Jesus says we need to live for Him. That's how we prepare. Look in verse 33. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. Please understand, if the kingdom of God is about our King, it is therefore not about your self-fulfillment. 
Being in the kingdom will require you to sacrifice, suffer, and submit to this king. I want you to understand, despite what you constantly hear, I think, that the Christian life is supposed to be hard. Self-discipline, overcoming temptation, loving your enemies, suffering. I don't know why we got this idea that the Christian life is supposed to be easy and comfortable and middle class. And Jesus says if you try to preserve your life, you try to run away from suffering and sacrifice, you're running away from me. If you try to preserve this type of life, you're going to lose it. You can't follow Christ and live for your own comfort and ease. If you live for your own possessions, you live for your own position, you not only lose those things, Jesus says you're going to lose your life as well. And again, this once again confronts this gospel of self-fulfillment that we have created in Western Christianity. And we come to God and we pray, do this for me and do this for me. And, and we are to present our request to God. But how many times have we come to God and say, okay, God, how can I serve you better? How many times do you pray, God, I just want, I want to sacrifice more for you. How can I sacrifice for you? I mean, you've heard me say this. This is what we, we do with even Christian ministry. We say, do this ministry and be blessed. Don't we say that? Right? Come listen to that guy. He's going to bless you and it's going to be so wonderful. And I, I appreciate the blessing. But how many times do we say, hey, do this because you're serving your king? Do this because it, it would be really uncomfortable, but Jesus will be honored through it. Right? Come work the nursery. We say kids are cute and wonderful. Right? Which are true, of course. But we never say, come work the nursery. They're going to scream for mommy. They're going to poop themselves. They're going to pull each other's hair. And you'll be pulling your hair when the hour and a half is over. But you're really going to bless some moms who need to gather and worship with their faith family. Why don't we say things like, let's be honest. Serve the king. He does not exist to enhance your life. Come on missions, it will change your life. God bless you, it will. But we never say, come on missions, you'll be exhausted, uncomfortable, you'll eat weird food, and you will be following King Jesus. He does not exist for your sake. You exist for His. I tell you, Jesus is returning. The Bible says when He returns, He's going to have eyes like flames of fire. He's going to have a crown upon his head. He's going to have a white robe dipped in blood. He has the armies of heaven at his back. He's carrying a sword in which Scripture says he will, he will, um, he will uh, bring the wrath of God with him. He will tread the winepress of the fury of God the Almighty. And I, is that the type of person you ask to be your assistant? Is that the type of person you ask to come when you call and do what you want? Is that the type of person that you say, okay, I'll, I'll take your advice, I'll follow your rules as long as it fits with my dreams and agenda? You need to be prepared. How many people, I think, are like Lot's wife who, who perish on the way to salvation? Right? Spurgeon said she was almost saved, but not quite. I think so many people are loosely attached to God, but more interested in things and what they can get out of God. And I just tell you what Jesus says. Remember Lot's wife. Don't be so close, but not quite in his kingdom. Enter beforehand, because when he returns, it's too late. For his return fifth will be divisive. The coming kingdom will be divisive. Verse 34. 
I tell you that in that night there will be two in one bed, one will be taken, the other left. There will be two women grinding together, one will be taken, the other left. I don't know if you could imagine sitting by someone you love over dinner, maybe playing a round of golf. I don't know what you're doing. You're having coffee with a brother, a friend, and, and all of a sudden, just in an instant, the coming king comes and there is now an eternal separation. It is the great divorce dividing even the closest relationship. Husband and wives, he said, who share the same bed. Workers who share the same office. Some will be saved. Others will be lost forever. Please understand, it does not matter who you're related to. We, I, we, we were going over this in family worship last night, and I was telling my kids, it does not matter that your daddy is a pastor. It doesn't. That will do you no good on the day of Christ. On the day of Christ, you will stand alone in your faith. Do I believe or do I not? It does not matter who your wife is, who your family is. It's coming and he's going to take some into paradise and others into judgment. Consider six, the coming kingdom will be destructive. The coming kingdom will be destructive. And they said to him, verse 37, where, Lord? Like, where will they be left? Some will be taken, others will be left. Where? Where is the judgment? He says, answer them, where the corpse is, the vultures will gather. He said, in other words, judgment is wherever the vultures are. He says, well, wait, wait, you see vultures flying overhead? What do you assume? What do you know? Something's died. Right? There's death around. And he, well, they say, where's the judgment? He says, wherever the dead are. He's, that, I think, is a reference to the spiritually dead, those who have yet to be born again. Judgment is wherever those who have yet to give their lives over. In fact, I know our time is running short, but humor me by turning to Revelation chapter 19, please. Revelation 19 is just about the end of our Scripture describing the return of Christ. You want to see a beautiful and powerful description of His return? You'll look in verses 11 through verse 16. But I want to pick up in verse 17. Revelation 19, verse 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called out, called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both great and small. The Bible tells us it does not matter on that day if you are great or, or, or weak, if you're a king or a general or a warrior, it does not matter. It doesn't matter if you're a free man or a slave man, right? Judgment will come upon all who have Refuse Christ's mercy. Look in verse 21. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. That's Jesus. They're slain by the word of his mouth. And the birds were gorged with their flesh. If you will not receive the forgiveness that Jesus Christ offers you, if you will not bow to him, as your king, then his return will be a day of destruction for you. Once judgment comes, there will be no turning back. The vultures only feed off the dead. And I encourage you with all that I have to prepare for his return by receiving his mercy. In fact, before all this happens, something must occur first. All right, we skipped a verse, didn't we? Did you note that? Consider seventh and last, the coming kingdom will be preceded by his death. Verse 25. 
back in Luke 17, verse 25. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. This will be the fifth time that Jesus, in Luke's gospel that Jesus predicts his death. He's going to do once more in startling detail. Look over in Luke 18, verse 31. Luke 18, verse 30. Turn over a page. And take, uh, taking the twelve, he said, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. Right? He says, I'm going, before all this happens, I need to be killed. And that raises the question, why? Why does Jesus have to die first? Why can't he just bring the kingdom in its fullness? Why can't we just have the better world why does he have to die? He has to die in order to deal with our sin. If he is going to destroy evil without destroying you and me, he has to deal with the evil in us. In fact, the second time he comes, we just saw this, he is going to destroy those who refuse his grace. But the first time he came, he destroyed himself in order to offer to everyone his grace. Right? Yes, the vultures will gather over the dead on this day, but please understand, the vultures first gathered over Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. There we find the corpse of our King dying to pay for our sin. Jesus is the King. He is, he is high right now, high and exalted, and He's sitting on a throne in heaven, and all around Him angels shout, Holy, holy, holy. And yet this King one day, thousands of years ago, took on flesh and came into this world, not riding a chariot, but a manger. And He came not in glory, but in humility. And He came not to rule, but to be murdered by sinners like me and you. And it's only if we enter this kingdom, we can only enter this kingdom because He first died to pay for our sin. He took all of his, our punishment upon Himself. He took all this destruction and judgment that we see and we shudder at this, this destruction and judgment. And we need to understand, Christ took that. So you don't have to. A vulture will never fly over my head because it first flew over Christ's head for me. You see... Christ now offers us, said, listen what I've done for you. See what I've done for you, and you see what is coming. What other choice is there but to receive my mercy and grace that you may be a citizen of this kingdom? This king loves you. You receive his rule today. Bow your knee to him that you may experience blessings untold today and forevermore. Our Father, we are today thankful as we consider judgment that we have been spared from it because Christ has been judged for us. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for your goodness and grace and your abounding love that we, we not only are forgiven, but that we have been brought into this kingdom. I pray for my friend here who has keeping you at arm's length and wants to rule their own life and will not submit to you I pray that you would not only show them their end if they persist, but your love through Calvary, that they might be won by you and bow their knee to King Jesus, placing their faith in Him. And I pray for the rest of us who know our Lord, 
and trust Him and love Him. May we be today and forevermore eternally grateful for what we have been saved from and to whom we have been saved. Help us today and tomorrow and every day live for the glory of our King. For we ask it in His name. Amen. You may be dismissed. Mm.